Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, well, welcome back, Solar Warriors, Climate Champions. This is another Tactical Tuesday here on Suncast. These are conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us in this clean energy revolution here on Suncast. If Thursdays are thoughtful insights into the who of the industry, consider this the what, when, how, where, the tools of the trade, if you will. And very often, as is today, we bring you content from one of our many live broadcasts and trainings. This one in particular is coming to you from the most recent live event that we've held, which is RE+, where we partnered with the conference to bring the Power Up Media Zone to life. At the Media Zone, we interviewed industry thought leaders, personalities, executives, and founders to glean their insights about the current trends and where the industry is going. This is one such interview, and I know you are going to love it. And if you're new here, I would hope that you will subscribe to the show. I hope that we earn your attention and trust after today's conversation. Of course, you can find more than 525 additional founder stories and startup advice over in our catalog of back conversations at mysuncast.com. You will also find all of the conversations that we streamed live from the Power Up Media Zone over on YouTube. If you just search Suncast Media or if you just put in to YouTube the channel marker for Suncast Media, it's all one word, Suncast Media, you will certainly find our channel and become one of our more than 1,000 subscribers to that channel as well. For now, let's get down to business and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, with another practical, tactical, live conversation from RE Plus here on Suncast. Welcome to the Power Up Media Zone, produced by Suncast Media and presented by Fluence. We're also streaming live at www.suncast.live. Thanks to our streaming sponsors, SunGrow and Tigo. If you're watching us on live stream, thank you for tuning in. My name is Bruce Stewart. I'm the CEO of Perch Energy. Uh, and welcome, please welcome all of you to the Perch Energy Insights Podcast. Boy, do I have a stacked set of panelists today. First, uh, to immediately to my left, you have Tony Grappone. I'll have them all introduce themselves in just a second. We have Adam Altenhofen. All right. They can hear the thunderous applause at, here, at the, uh, here at RE+. And Brian DDA. That's Thank correct. you. I, just noting, I got the wave. You so, got the wave? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you all. Uh, we have a really, really hot topic today. Uh, we're going to talk about the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and its impact on the renewables industry, but quite specifically its impact on community solar, on community solar projects. We're going to talk about tax equity and the impact on IRA and our, what's near and dear to the Perch Energy business, which is community solar. We're one of the largest players that provides a clean energy 
platform and services to um, all, all the largest real estate, uh, excuse me, uh, solar developers and asset owners around the country here in the U.S. And so let's jump into it. Why don't we? So why don't we, I'll ask you, Tony, if you can kick it off, give us a little bit about your background and expertise. We really have assembled some of the best and and the brightest from an accounting perspective on tax equity, from an advisory perspective, from a banking perspective, and from a legal advisory and policy perspective. You really can't beat this crew. So Tony, kick us off, please. Yeah, great. Uh, First off, thank you, Bruce, for organizing this podcast and inviting us to be here with you today. It's, It's a pleasure. It's an honor. So excited to be here. So my name is Tony Grapponi. I'm a partner with the accounting firm Novogratic and Company LLP. We're a national CPA firm that specializes in providing accounting and financial consulting services to the renewable energy industry. We've got about uh, probably the, arguably the deepest bench of CPA type professionals in the country. We help folks uh, structure deals to raise the money so that they can build and operate community solar projects like the ones that Perch works on. Yeah. Critical, critical role. Thank you, Tony. Yeah. Hi, uh, Adam Altenhafen, and thanks. Bruce, for having us here as well. Um, I'm the Senior Vice President with U.S. Bank's Environmental Finance Group. We are a uh, predominantly a tax equity investor. We've been investing in solar and wind and related technologies since uh, 2008. Uh, we've invested about a little over $15 billion of capital since that time. Been on the team since uh, 2011 in different roles, you know, underwriting origination and now looking at kind of new products and innovation, impact investing, which we, we see as community solar still being a you know, great catalyst to, you know, really expanding access to solar, uh, enabling low-income communities to participate in, you know, this energy transition. So great to be here and talk to you. Well, it's great to have you, Adam. Thank you very much. All right, Brian. Brian Diddy, I'm a partner at Leverage Law Group. Uh, We're a boutique law firm in Kansas City area, and uh, we work primarily in two areas, which is the uh, renewable uh, tax credit and overall renewable industry, as well as new market tax credits. We've been doing renewable deals since uh, 2009 when the firm started, and we've had a tremendous pleasure over that time to work with a number of developers, investors, lenders, and a lot of those projects in the very meaningful community solar space. And we've seen that under a number of different state programs and criteria and several evolutions of those. So it's exciting to see what IRA has to offer those type of developments and really looking forward from a policy perspective and how that's going to impact access to solar across the board for um, people who might not otherwise have it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much, Brian. So as we approach this panel, we, you know, we had a lot of topics we could have picked. And IRA was one of the ones top of mind, obviously, because the solar developers out there that are building projects all throughout the U.S., folks that are actually buying those projects and then managing them over the long haul are really, really interested in, you know, what are the impacts? What do we know today? And what will we actually learn through time, through rule promulgation around IRA? What's also happening? There's lots of state legislation that's happening that's further enabling community solar projects to be built, smaller format solar projects. We sort of fit in that space. You've got the big utility projects. You've got the behind the meter sort of solar projects. And then you have these small format, you know, five to seven or any number of sizes, but let's call that an average megawatt projects that sort of fill in, connect right to the grid. And our, and our, you know, our clients are like, help provide us insights, give us guidance. And I really honestly couldn't be any happier than, than all of you are here today to sort of provide that guidance. You're the experts. Everybody make sure we know that they're the experts. I'm not. I've just tapped them. <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to do, get some, uh, some good uh, provocative conversation. So why don't we do a little level setting? Right. And maybe, Tony, maybe you can kick us off here. So tax equity. Lots of people go, "Uh uh-oh, 
and then run like, I, I don't understand it. What is it? Maybe give us a little bit of that 101, that primer, that little brief on tax equity, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, look, the federal government for decades has used, uh, have used tax credits as a tool to try to stimulate private sector investment into certain socially minded causes like renewable energy, you know, trying to drive job creation into low income communities and also to provide affordable housing. You know, prior to 2006, there really wasn't a solar market in this country. But at the end of 2005, the federal government created the 30% ITC. And that really served to launch this industry and has been a critical financing element of renewable energy and has really helped to kind of bring the industry to what we see today. Okay. And so how does tax equity work? You know, the tax credits, they're tricky to monetize. There are complicated tax rules around that and, and certain investors can use them more efficiently than others. Okay. So the idea is... You know, Bruce, say you're going to own a solar, a community solar facility. Yep. If you can't use the tax credits because maybe as an individual you're restricted or you don't have enough tax liability, well, you can work with Adams Company, U.S. Bank, who can, you know, presumably has a bigger tax liability, and the tax rules favor the bank's ability to use these credits more efficiently than individuals. Yep. And so what we do is we try to structure an investment where you as a developer can uh, do what you're best at and bring that project to operational state. Mm -hmm. At the same time, use money from the private sector from, from an investor type to effectively monetize those tax credits. A true win-win between these parties. Absolutely. Yep. When you think of the key players that, that need to come together for this, you obviously have the developer side. Talk a little bit about who some of the key players. I think some of you are here right here on the panel, but talk a little bit about that. Yeah, right. So the key players, obviously, it starts with really your sponsor, the sponsor yep. developer. I'll use that, those terms synonymously here. Okay. So they're developing the project. They're getting it constructed. They're getting it placed in service and operating it. And then, you know, you've got your investor. Okay. Yep. In this case, we'll just think of U.S. Bank as that investor. To close the deal, you need a team of professionals, accountants, attorneys like Brian's group at Leverage Law. You need appraisers, all, you know, environmental specialists, engineers, and, and so forth. And then you need... You know, especially with community solar. Right. I mean, the work that you do. I mean, I think I think servicing community solar customers is is one of the bravest uh, business endeavors that <laughs> somebody can well, enter into these days. Uh -huh. And you guys do it so well. And so that that's a critical aspect of uh, successful community solar projects is having that service provider that can handle the billing, the collections, and uh, you know, monitor production and so forth. And so, as a developer, from you know, with those credits, you know, the thirty percent. And we just had a, the IRA, we'll get into that IRA in a little bit, what, how to adjust that. But how do you think of, you know, how would you in a thumbnail sort of talk about the economics? Like what's the economic value that happens both to the developer, maybe to the bank, to, from an accounting perspective? How would you sort of frame that up? Sure, yeah, I'm happy to take that one. So it, generally speaking, the, the, you know, the developer and the tax equity investor will form a partnership. There's other ways to monetize the credit efficiently as well. You can do it through you know, leasing structures and things like that. But let's just take a you know, simple partnership as an example. So you, you'd create a partnership. The tax credit gets generally allocated 99% to the tax investor. The tax investor is making a contribution based on an expected rate of return or a multiple of the ITC. So U.S. Bank generally invests kind of on a multiple of the ITC basis. We take, you know, a sliver of cash out of the deal. We take 2% of, you know, pref out of the deal over five years. And there's, you know, generally a buyout that, you know, may or may not occur at the end of five years for a fair market value of the interest. So, you know, the tax equity investor in a solar ITC project with a 30% ITC could provide, you know, 35 to 40% of the capital stack, depending on where the project you know, appraises, depending on what its cost is, how much margins in the deal. So there's, you know, an extra 35 to 40% of the capital stack that the developer is able to monetize through this structure 
but otherwise, if they didn't have the tax liability, they wouldn't be wouldn't be, wouldn't be monetized. Right. Yep. Right. And then, um, you know, so ITC versus PTC, just from a sort of a basic standpoint, uh, production tax credit versus the investment investment tax credit. Just from a, a one-on-one standpoint, how do you how do you differentiate that from returns from? Sure. Know, yeah, so that's you know one of the changes now with with IRA is now that solar is eligible for PTC. So wind has been eligible for the production tax credit since 1992. Now you know solar can avail itself of the the production tax credit again. So the production tax credit is is based on the the kilowatt hours that are produced and sold by the uh, the solar facility, unlike the investment tax credit that is based on the cost of the the solar facility. And so the production the PTCs are generated as the kilowatt hours are generated and similarly are monetized through the partnership with the tax equity investor. Those are usually targeted return type investments where the, the investment will flip once they've received a certain allocation of PTCs, losses and cash. And you know, I think we'll we'll see in, in solar that, you know, PTCs, you know, may be attractive for projects that are in, you know, sunnier locations with higher insulation that are going to generate higher production values. Whereas the ITC is probably still better in, in states with lower insulation or projects that have just a higher cost per watt basis. Gotcha. And, and, yeah, go ahead. And I was just going to, yeah, you, were you going to comment on the PTC period of 10 years versus, you know, you get yeah, the I mean, production you, you, tax Yeah, I mean, you've got a longer play. And, and so I think that leads back to what you were saying, Adam, from a, from a perspective of when is the money coming into that capital stack on the PTC, just because of the way those contributions are usually structured, there would be less money up front, perhaps more longer term. So developers will kind of make that decision based both on you know production versus cost, but yep. how quickly it allows them to take their remaining capital and forward deploy that for what their strategies may be. Got it. And Brian, maybe from the context of one of the key players here from, from legal advice, you know, policy mm-hmm. and regulatory advice, what, what did we miss here in our 101 from a standpoint of standpoint of the projects and, you know, returns and the rest. No, I think, I mean, in, in, in that's all correct. And we're, we're thinking a little more along the lines of the business. And in right. and, and doing the deals, though, you know, the investor and other participants in the project want to make sure that the tax structure is, is sacrosanct. And yep. that's, you know, always a key that it, that it makes sense to not just look at that when you're finally going to market for tax equity, but to think of that up front. Right. And especially, you know, for community solar, there can be some trips along the way with how ownership or benefits may be structured from PPAs that you want to avoid as you're doing the process to make sure when it's time for tax equity, the worst thing you can do is you have to go back and do multiple touches from the other participants in the structure and say, oh, we gave you this deal, we signed this, but we need to amend something now. Right. So you know, there's a longer thought process and to have the right involvement and investment advice up front so you're structuring for that eventuality gives you the flexibility to maximize the project value when it's time to execute that portion of the transaction. So for people that are sort of listening, listening to us here and we're thinking a little bit about like, well, geez, this sounds like you've got a, a multiple of players, some, some complexity in, but having people that can sort of break it down, make it simple to understand, how do we think about it from a timing perspective? When people think about that engagement, you just said, hey, get us in early, right, from a, a guidance and advice. How do people sort of put this in a, in a window of time for, you know, the developer says, hey, as a sponsor, to your point, Tony, you know, I need to now engage a series of advisors. What's that sort of start to finish look like, just so people have a sense of that window? Yeah, you know, it probably depends on the project, the size of the portfolio and so forth. But even sort of your simplest, cleanest, one-off kind of project, you know, it's going to take probably a month or two just, to, I think, to nail down term sheets. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yep. then once you get a term sheet signed, 
that kicks off a formal financial due diligence closing process. And I think, you know, even your faster, kind of quicker, accelerated closing timeline is, you're, you're probably talking 120 days, yeah. even for yeah. a very efficient repeat kind of uh, right. closing. If you've got a large portfolio of community solar projects, or even if it's a really large utility scale project, um, new sponsor, new territory, or whatever, it can like it can sometimes take you know four, five, six months to close. So sure. it kind of depends. But sure. I'd say I, I would sort of caution financiers to I, I caution them against thinking they could do a successful closing in less than 120 days. I don't know what Brian and Adam, what uh, do you think? I, I think that's I think that's good guidance. Right. Uh, right. And I think it's you know. A lot of it is, right? It's about how, how well developed, you know, how, how populated your data room is. You know, what, how much diligence do you have done? Have you done your, have you done your phase one? Have you engaged your independent engineer? Have you thought through that? Have you, you know, engaged a, you know, an accountant to run the modeling? Yep. What, what's the status of that? You know, a lot of times, you know, we get asked, well, what, what makes kind of a good project or ready to, ready to be developed? And to me, it's, you know, have you engaged the right advisors and, and kind of, is the project ready to go? I think the challenge of you know community solar and timing oftentimes is you've got a portfolio of projects and those projects can be at various stages of development when they go to an investor and the project that's least developed is the one that it direct you know is the one that's kind of going to dictate the closing timeline for the entire portfolio. So being thoughtful about when you're bringing projects, how well developed each one of them are, and if they're all kind of similar stages. That makes sense, but uh, you know there is also a challenge of trying to get the projects to a to a size where investors will will you know take a look at it as well. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I mean to say on that, you know, so let's say we're just playing like real time today. We're starting the term sheet discussions, and we want to take advantage of some of these great new incentives that start in 2023 mm-hmm. for a community solar project. If that portfolio is four different sites that are all in Massachusetts, you know, have very similar offtake. The, the leases, all the other operating documents were all kind of following the same form and they're all going to place in uh, service Q1. Yep. Right. We, we probably can get that done and be ready to go so that January you're, you're ready to go and ready to start turning the systems on. If you've got 12 sites, you know, you got a couple in Rhode Island. I got something out in Oregon. I've got something in Minnesota. I got some stuff in Illinois. I mean, and, and that's going to be a lot more complex, especially if some of those are already Q1 and some are already Q4 of next year. And you're trying to solve for that lowest common denominator of what needs to be underwritten, where the uncertainties are, okay. and how that whole portfolio looks together. Yep. And it's interesting, too. You also had to add in the time frame to the extent it's a community solar project. You have to actually build that a proper lead time to actually right. stack it with customers, to actually go out and get your Right, and that's exactly where business, you're right. coming in and looking right. at, and, and one of the things, you know, Adam probably talk on this a lot, but, you know, looking at who your aggregator is going to be for both acquisition and then ongoing billing services yep. goes a long way then if you come in the door and you're a community solar, like, I'm going to do that all myself. Right, right. Adam's right. kind of going... Uh, okay, yeah. well, you, you can do that you, all yourself, you? <laughs> yeah. but I'm not closing with you until you've done that right, all right, yourself. Right, right, right. Oh, and by the way, once you sell them, that's one thing you have to actually now bill, you know, and service them and all the rest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, build, that's right. Billing, <laughs> billing collections, customer yeah. service, all yeah. managed. Somebody's got to answer that phone. Yeah, right? that matters a lot to, <laughs> so call a lot to investors. Call Perch. Yep, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Maybe the last one, maybe as a, as a turn here to the, sort of the next part of our conversation, in, an open question. As folks are coming to you, listen, I really want a, a, a very competitive, strong ROI. Like from each of your perspectives, 
what are the things that are driving ROIs? Like when you're when you're talking and giving people guidance and advice, whether it's a small developer, asset owner, you pick. But you know, how how are you helping them sort of sort of think through what good returns look like? How do I have the most competitive project? What are a couple of the takeaways you would leave with somebody? So I mean, you know, I'm mostly curious in Adam's thoughts on this as the <laughs> mm-hmm. as the actual investor. Yeah. But when I talk <laughs> to clients, you know, developer clients will call me and say, you know, what what are what are re- investors requiring for returns these days, ROIs, right? Yep. And, it, and it really ranges. It changes all the time. Okay, throughout the year, it's going to yep. ebb and flow. And depending on the type of project, the type of sponsor, et cetera, all go into what the ROI requirements are going to look like. Yep. Okay, so if you're in a proven market with projects that have a track record, you know, those ROIs can be lower. Investor ROIs can be lower there because yep. the, what the investor's thinking is, okay, this is a, a sturdier sort of return here, mm-hmm. more reliable, more predictable, yep. so we can, we can um, accept a lower return. If you're talking about a new technology, you know, with IRA, you've got these new technologies that sure. qualify for tax credits. Well, you know, if, if uh, things play out like they have historically, investors will most likely require higher returns on some of these emerging technologies, okay? So again, kind of common sense stuff like big big utility scale projects, high credit quality off taker with a proven uh, sponsor, good balance sheet, all that kind of stuff like, plays into lower returns and then uh, the inverse of all that kind of plays into higher returns. That's great, great. Yeah, I, I would echo what Tony said. Yeah, you know, I mean, we don't really have a target ROI. It, it yeah. does. It depends on the project, depends on the risk, depends on the supply demand balance of you know tax equity versus tax credits in the market. So, when there's you know years where supply can be tight for you know project supply, and there's a good you know liquidity of tax equity that's going to move the needle. You know, that's going to lower the ROI. In other years where the the market is you know flush with projects. And there's, you know, a recession that's limiting tax, you know, liability across the board. That's going to drive the ROIs higher too. So, I think there's also that there's the risk reward balance, right. and there's also just the supply demand balance of, yep. of, of yep. tax capacity. And yep. along with that, I mean, looking at the natural tensions within the transaction structure, you know, tax equity and debt want certainty of returns, and obviously, the sponsor you want to maximize upside. And the certainty of returns comes with, you know, a more safe perhaps longer tenure of, you know, offtake and other agreements and, and not trying to maximize all the upside. When you start taking all those other risks, then you've got a lot of upside in your project, but, you know, tax equity and debt are looking at that a little bit like, well, that's a little shakier, maybe and require yeah. a little bit, you know, different coverage ratios here yep. and a little different ROI piece on that. Um, so there, you know, that's going to impact all those pricing and that natural tension kind of plays itself out throughout the structure of striking the right balance to have an underwritable project that sits well, but also allows you to maximize your upside and then capture kind of that, that real cash value to the maximum extent you can. Yep. Great. Well, great points. Let's take, let's take a little turn here, shall we? So we, we've all got uh, a good primer here on, you know, tax equity and, and project financing, some of the, the do's, do's and don'ts and, and ways to optimize. We're here, we've got IRA. IRA is just uh, in front of us here. What's the future of tax equity, right? Looking ahead. And how, what are the impacts? What does IRA change? Well, I thought, you know, as we would, would frame our conversation today, we'll take it into six. Take it into six sort of major themes and then we'll tease those themes out with each of our experts here on a series of questions. So and the future of tax equity is great, Adam, right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't be thinking anything else other than tax equity. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. No one more to answer. Yeah. It's you know, awesome. Right? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so the fir- first up is transferability 
of tax credits. So a big, big issue there. I'm just going to, I'm going to lay these each out. Then we're going to come back. Next up one was adders or additional incentives that are now sort of embedded into IRA. Next up, new eligible costs, different mm-hmm. costs that weren't included before that can now be included in for purposes of, uh, of your calculations, as well as technologies, as well as new technologies. Then you have solar PTCs. We touched a little bit on that. Get back into that a little bit more. Direct pay. Some people are like, whoa, what's direct pay and how is that applicable here? And then last, global minimum tax. All right. So those are our, those are our six topics and, uh, and, we'll, and we'll run with those. So transferability of tax credits, game changer, right? An absolute game changer. And maybe just at a threshold, okay, transferability, it wasn't before, it is now. Sort of explain that. How does it work, right? Is there precedence for this elsewhere? Is there, are there other, like, maybe give a start from that. And anybody can jump at it, whoever would ever like to hit it. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, traditionally tax equity and the production tax credit and and the ITC, the allocation of the credits is to the owners, right? right? And they've got to have the tax appetite, tax capacity. Transferability changes that because it allows the taxpayer at the, you know, partnership level or an individual owner level to essentially just sell the credit availability to someone else. So, you know, we can kind of go through of how tax equity approaches things in the various components of their return. It's not just the credit value, okay. but there are a number of other markets, you know, particularly a number of state credits that are transferable, even kind of certificated credits. This opens that up to potentially a much broader audience. And especially when you start thinking about the community solar space, if you are a smaller developer and you are doing smaller transactions, you may not need to aggregate to the same volume that you would otherwise have to generate okay. tax equity interest in your deal. You've got a smaller transaction. You've got some access to capital you may not have been able to include in your stack okay. otherwise because you've got, you've got a bottom line monetization option that I don't have the appetite for it, but I can always transfer that to someone at some value. Does it change? Does this transferability change some of the traditional structures with, you know, having a having these JVs that you were mentioning before, right, I mean, Adam? It, is it, that or does it, it depends? Yeah, it de- I'm it just de- curious. It depends. Yeah. So you could still enter into, you could still enter into a partnership. Yep. And the tax investor could still be allocated the the credits through that partnership, and then partnership could still transfer those credits still as well. That, right? So you could do that. Or you could just you could have a single owner, and this, the owner could transfer the credits to somebody that could take it. Uh, so you know it, it de- kind of depends, right? And there's there's different values that you're you're giving up or trading in, in both of those scenarios. So in I a, think that comes yeah. back to that kind of way, you know when you invest, what are the components yeah. of your return as a tax equity investor versus the component of the return when you do a transfer. The return is simply the credit itself. Yep. Yep. That's that's yep. all you're paying for, and you're paying something less than a dollar per credit. Yeah, it, that's right. And so when you're investing through a partnership, you're you're getting you're getting accelerated depreciation. So you're, there's losses that you're monetizing. There's cash that comes to you as mm-hmm. as a partner in the partnerships. You're monetizing, you know, a stream of cash flows yep. as well for yep. you know 35, 40 year useful life. In a transfer credit, yeah, you're just buying a tax offset. And, you know, what you're willing to pay for that is going to be your, your return and margin on that. And there's another whole conversation for, you know, ESG-minded investing. Yeah. How yeah. does just buying a tax credit, which, again, going back to the very theory of tax credits, it's essentially allowing someone to self-channel their tax liability 
from a policy perspective, just something they believe in. They believe in. Fact. How how does that compare versus having the ownership through a partnership or other vehicle that you would otherwise have in a traditional tax equity structure? Is another question. Who's lining up, right? So you now you've got this transferability. How do you characterize some of the folks that are lining up to actually be the to be the recipients, right, of these tax credits? You know, so far there's a lot of speculation here. But yeah. let me let me take a step back too and just say that you know the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. I think it's safe to say that this is the largest piece of tax Absolutely. legislation passed since probably the 1986 uh, Tax Reform Act. Mm. Okay, not only that, it is this signifies the largest investment our country has made into uh, increasing the deployment of clean energy in this country. Yeah. So it's it's massive. Now, in terms of uh, transferability, transferability is really about inserting liquidity mm -hmm. into the tax equity market, okay? Yep. So the rules that governed how to structure tax equity investments prior to transferability, very well intended, but place uh, a fair amount of constraints on how liquid that, that credit is. And the transferability option really just, it sort of expands the candidates that can use the credits mm -hmm. in ways we've never seen before. Right. It adds optionality to the financing mix in ways that we've never seen before and really will serve to just, again, add liquidity to a product that historically has kind of lacked a fair amount of liquidity. That, that liquidity itself sort of changes the story going forward. We don't even know how that full story will be told. Yeah, as you see it. But certainly a lot of alternatives and especially looking at this community solar market, the smaller end of the market now has alternatives when it maybe didn't have any before, except for if you were a developer, your money, best monetization scheme may have been to sell to someone who could then aggregate and take advantage of tax credit equity that you may not have been able to on an individual basis. So one of, the project. one of the largest pieces of climate legislation to drive clean energy development, arguably also to the smaller scale projects, mm -hmm. to your point, creating that sort of liquidity and flexibility in financing projects. Do you then go to an accelerator, or do you think that very nature of that transferability is an, an absolute accelerator ongoing investment? Kind of a is, that a, is that a layup? I think ultimately it's going to really accelerate uh, the deployment of renewable energy in this country. Yep. Okay. You know, initially, maybe not, not it's not going to get off to an immediate jump start right now. You know, we still need some guidance to come from sure. Treasury on how to, uh, you know, really interpret all these rules and apply them. But in the long run, once those rules come out, I think you're going to, the, the transferability option is going to be the, have the biggest impact on uh, the growth of clean energy over the next, call it 10 years. So let's pick, let's pick at that point you just made, Tony. So relative to, I'll call them issues or things to be sort of wary of or to watch, right? Whether it's rules being additional rule promulgation, what are some of the issues in and around transferability that are sort of top of mind or that you know, our asset owner or developer clients should be thinking about? I mean, yeah, I would just, just start from, and I think, I mean, just fundamentally, what, you know, what, what does it actually look like to transfer? You know, yeah. like, what are you actually doing? I think that's, that's kind of yeah. a first question. You know, there's probably still some, some ambiguity in question around where does the recapture risk live? Um, mm. So, you know, the tax credits can be recaptured if there's a, a change of ownership or the, the project, you know, ceases operation, that can cause a recapture of the tax credit. So who bears, who bears that risk? Okay. Um, fundamentally, does it stay with the person that transferred it? Does it go with the transferee? you need indemnity agreements around that. I think that's an open question as well. So, you know, those are probably a couple of the, you know, a couple of the big pieces um, on the transfer. And then just, you know, outside of guidance, I think to Tony's earlier point too, just like, where does the market kind of 
coalesce? Where does the pricing settle on this? Like there's some precedent in state tax credit markets, but where does the where does the, the pricing kind of settle? So that'll kind of that'll dictate a little bit on your you know decision points and, yeah, and where, point. where where does it cross over? Right. Yeah, and I would say we talk about this again. There is a price to doing traditional tax equity, right? There's just a transaction cost to doing that. And, you know, there, there's a labyrinth of partnership agreements, other documents. There's a lot of review that gets done. You know, part of the question is when we get a little more clarity on transferability rules, how people price those, all those parts are going to kind of come together to dictate how much simpler the process can be and how much less work there is all for the, all the wonderful tax attorneys in the world who have been constructing all these, you know, series of documents. There's still got to be something, but how, how clean can it be? What are the products come out there that allow you to kind of just do a, a buy and sale of a certificated credit, if you will, with less review or a package of documents that's more off the shelf and less negotiation? Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast, moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations, our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia, to green hydrogen, to crypto, and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. So, Plenty more opportunities for how does this all work? So we're we're not we're not we we know we got the option right? right now. The question is how does it actually all work, and that'll play out over. What's your view of that's going to play out over the next, you know, like year and a half if or even longer probably. You know, if if uh, the guidance comes out in a manner sort of similar to how Treasury's put out uh, guidance in the past, I think it's safe to say you're looking at twelve. 12 months, okay. plus or minus, okay. uh, could be longer, right? Okay. Just to kind of put a bow on the transferability questions, you know, Adam's point about recap, who bears the recapture mm-hmm. risk there, that is the most commonly asked question about transferability. I think another important uh, question we need to be thinking about, though, is what type of income uh, can you mm-hmm. use this credit against? Mm. Okay. okay, that's uh, a good point. Is it, is it, for example, there are people asking, can you use, is this a portfolio income tax credit? All right. So that's another important question mm. here because everybody's very excited about it, mm. but we don't really know what type of income tax liability can benefit from a transfer credit. So I think that's a, I think that's a question that some people are thinking about, but yeah. not. But the I think the industry needs to be thinking about it a lot. I can more. open or close the pool. Right, of right, right. It, there, yeah. There's that piece as well as just giving the flexibility of having another alternative to access to the liquidity of the markets. Also, 
you can really change that liquidity and access to markets depending on who can take that credit. You could, you know, blow the doors off of who's available to participate. And especially for those smaller projects, they don't have to go to those traditional sources with the right kinds of liability if, if they could take it to a different audience. Right. right. But I think there is concern if it's characterized one way and it can only be portfolio income, that it could right. actually that could actually not really have the, the big effect of, of increasing the liquidity. So, yeah. you know, I think, you know, to, to Brian's earlier point, like, you know, getting more corporates into this space, that, that I think really drives a lot of the liquidity here. You know, ESG being a big focus for a lot of these corporate investors as well. So, right. you know, yeah. The yeah. question, the overall liquidity may not change that, but transferability can still have a really transformative impact because of the tailoring of the amount of credit to the need versus doing an investment tax credit or a production tax credit where, you know, that partnership ownership is going to set based on whatever it's going to generate, who's taking which split of that mm. with transferability potentially opens the option to sprinkle things out or, you know, you've got a certain pool of credits, you can transfer all or a portion of the credits and allows you to maybe maximize how you're accessing that liquidity market and right. tailoring to investors' particular need for a year, especially looking at, you know, if we're after the end of the year, we're going hunting for these. We didn't have to have that ownership in the structure when it placed in service yep. and for deals that miss. You know, right now, we're, we're signed up to do a deal. It's 2023 and, and supply chain happens at place in service 2024. Well, you didn't get any credits, but now you could go access the market for transferability and fill that gap and from just, 2023. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. A little flexibility there. All right, let's, take, let's turn to uh, theme two. Theme two here is really around adders, um, you know, and the additional incentives that come through IRA, right, that get you another 10%, another 10%, a 20, you know, 50% prevailing wage and apprenticeship uh, requirements. You got construction, you know, uh, domestic sort of, uh, construction elements uh, and equipment pieces, environmental justice allocated credits, clearly all the LMI incentives that are getting a lot of, a lot of conversation. Maybe take us through, like, as you sort of look at that pool What's the conversation you're hearing about? I know we're getting lots of questions like, what's it, what, you know, what does it mean? How do we actually properly sort of get out? What are some of the things that you're, that you're fielding already from IRA? Yeah, we're getting, you know, we're getting a lot of questions because people are smart. You know, and, and, right. and, and before the surprise announcement, you know, in the July, people were shifting their focus to... They're written it off, right? <laughs> well, people were shifting their focus to, hey, we've got, a, we've got a, a step down at the end of this year where we move from a 26% to 22% ITC if right. we don't begin construction. So we're already looking at a lot of revisiting begun construction and certain of those opportunities being in construction, those markets get a little tapped and there's only a certain supply constraint. What can we get done? What are the other alternatives? That begun construction concept is still in play with, with a couple of these, right? So, you know, thinking about where these different adders are, in general, all of these ones we're going to talk about are 2023 go forward. You know, technically the wage and labor yep. or or wage and apprenticeship rules apply now, but we've got get out of jail free card if you're less than one megawatt, which yep. is something really important to think about with That's this audience, huge. right? You, you don't have that. And, and the, so the way it operates, you know, with the reset of IRA, it's a 6% ITC for your traditional thinking in solar, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a five times multiplier if you are less than one megawatt, yep. comply with wage and labor, or going back to this one, begin construction before the date that's 60 days after Treasury issues guidance on wage and labor compliance. So there's still a lot of emphasis right now on, hey, if you were going to come to me and say, I'm going to, I've got a pipeline, I'm like, hey, think about doing begun construction 
Because even though you may have every intention of complying with wage and apprenticeship, until we get that specific guidance, what happens if there's something there that you just can't do on certain projects? You still want to begin construction. Right. So that's, that's a really important one is to start thinking about that deadline. Then, then looking at the rest, you know, again, for this, for this particular audience, we've got the new different new technologies that are available. And that's, that's really exciting. The standalone batteries now not had to be coupled with solar. We don't have to worry about how much is it going to charge. We have solar charging protocols, you know, record keeping on that and the the more complex rules under the regs. But we've also got the inclusion starting in 2023 of your interconnection costs. And, you know, with these smaller projects, there was a bit of a penalty that someone might be paying to be the first to kind of pay for the line upgrades at a certain point. And with those costs not being eligible for the ITC, it took some projects off the table. Right. And, right. you know, you may have a first in line where you may pay a million bucks. The second line may pay less than 100000 That's a huge difference. Now, with all those costs being includable, it puts some of those projects back out there in the mix back and makes the mix. them viable. Yep. Then the other ones, you know, kind of going through your order here, especially low-income community. And, you know, a lot of the community solar we're seeing, it's already community-based. It certainly typically fits that profile of being five megawatts AC or For less, sure. which yep. is where your cutoff is. So that's that's another exciting opportunity that could be a 10 or 20% based on location or kind of benefits. Right. And then we've got um, you know the wage and labor that gives you, gives you the 5X multiplier. Then you've got the energy communities. That's another 10% multiplier. Mm-hmm. And you've got domestic content, right? And so- You could really stack these up. Right? You really can't. I mean, yeah. you could go from you know a 6% ITC to a 70%. ITC along that scale. And the questions we're getting for advice or best practices are, I want to do domestic content. How do I plan for that? And we're like, well, and what applies? We don't completely (laughs) know yet. We, we can recommend some best practices, but those are the kind of questions. And I want to get low income community. Well, the important thing to remember for low income community is there's some black and white criteria there, just like there's some black and white for the energy community subsidy. Right. There are some other areas a little more gray, so we need the guidance on those. But in the low-income community adders, especially, it's going to be subject to an award or an allocation of environmental justice. Yeah. That, you know, we know an amount that's going to be allocated. We don't know yet how that program will run. And like Tony said, when will guidance come out? Will will it all come out at once? What will be the nature of the guidance? Because sometimes the new code sections talk about when the Treasury issues and the Secretary issues regulations, mm-hmm. which is a different level than the Secretary issues guidance, which could be some other form. I mean, and on the low, medium income sort of customer set and delivering value to those, I mean, we have active projects today where, right. you know, it's 50% up to, you know, almost 100% of those projects. And, they're, and, they're, and you've got state, state, state-based rules. Now you've got IRA. And then there is some, is there some reconciliation required? So those are still TBD. It, it, that's beyond, exactly right. Right. So anything else on the adders? Anybody wanted to sort of add on the adders? Anything else on top of mind? I think, no. I think Brian covered it pretty well. Yeah, he did. The only thing I just want to just uh, add on the, um, on the adders is that uh, the 1.8 gigawatt ah, right, allocation, right, right. That, that adder is where we're getting a lot of questions from the industry about when are we going to see guidance uh, from Treasury on how that program is going to work? Right. And the, bills, the bill has language in there that says that Treasury has six months from the date of enactment to put that guidance out. My understanding is that the 1.8 gigawatt authority allocation guidance is uh, top priority for Treasury. Okay. So I think we're apt okay, to see that guidance news. before maybe yeah. other areas of 
guidance comes good, good. out. One right. quick, uh, to maybe Adam's the, the right person to tell people about this, but if you're looking at something that thinks they're going to have these adders, what is your willingness to write a term sheet for these adders and commit to these? Because, you know, yeah, it's, the, a, a difference between a 30% ITC, which you can kind of get comfortable that they're going to satisfy begun construction, versus 70%. Yeah. How are you writing your commitment? And then how would you fund, if we're talking beginning of January, we don't have guidance yet, is, is there a particular adder you would fund for? I or think, are there others you wouldn't? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's a really good question. I think that it, it all comes down to kind of the, the diligence and how certain you can be. So, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, this one will will clearly qualify as an energy community. It's, you know, located next to a close coal plant. That's probably right. That's probably one that we could fund on right now. You know, again, kind of subject to diligence. But, you know, the harder ones are, oh, it, it meets the unemployment threshold. You know, I think there's some, there's definitely a lack of clarity on like when is the, when is the unemployment measured? What you know is it measured at the you know time of construction? Is it measured the prior year? Is it measured you know after construction commences when you bring all these jobs into a community with a lot of, not a lot of employment? That's going to be a harder one to fund on without any guidance. Um, so I think you know we could you know for the right project and you know has the right characteristics you know we can we can build in flexibility. We'd probably fund on you know the thirty percent assuming again that they've safe harbored it appropriately we've gone through safe harbor mm-hmm. you know start of construction analysis and many times before so as long as that's kind of consistent with how it's done before you know that we can fund on the 30 percent and then if after guidance comes out it clearly qualifies for 10 20 30 percent additional adders like you know then i think we know we, we fund on that you know it will be a, it's gonna be you know something we'll all have to kind of think about how do you plan for it you know that's the other thing too i mean tax investors generally have you know a certain allocation of credits that they want in a certain year and you have to plan for them and we're you know used to modest swings here and there but a 30 percent to a 70 yeah, percent itc swing. that's a big swing you know <laughs> yeah. so or a miss when you're planning on that 70 percent <laughs> yeah, itc so, they deliver 30 percent yeah you know what a miss a miss both miss both Either Both way. ways within a bank is a, is a bad mess. So um, so it's just going to have to be very careful. We'll have to you know think about through that and diligence yeah. it, and you know that's why you engage good experts to uh, to help you with that analysis. But guidance would be very welcome on all all of these adders. All of those for items, sure. yeah. yep. More to come, right? Yeah. We talked about the third theme, which is a new eligible cost. Talked about inter- interconnection costs and standalone storage. So I won't hit that on the technology side. Maybe let's go solar solar PTCs. We talked a little bit. Of, about that early on and sort of the choice between, you know, going an ITC route versus production tax credits. Do you think um, that community solar project owners, is there any, is there any drivers or any top line drivers, which way you would go, or do you have a general predisposition, do you think, Adam, to, to one or the other? My, my assumption is that uh, a lot of, a lot of community solar projects will continue to elect for the ITC. Yeah. And that's driven really just because of the, you know, the smaller smaller project so the higher kind of cost per watt you're not getting those large efficiencies economies of scale uh, that you are with a larger project so that's generally going to result in a you know a higher you know higher itc value make the project more economical for the itc i think you know also generally where we've seen community solar markets are generally in areas with with lower insulation there's incentives you know created to kind of create those markets so those are probably going to be you know more on the itc you know side as well you know, PTCs also have generally kind of historically been, you know, much larger commitments up front. Uh, so it may or may not, you know, work as well for community yeah, solar. Especially as it's yeah. five, five megawatts and below. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, so I, I think you probably see it, you know, 
continue, you know, continuing to be mostly an ITC market in the community. So great. Yep. So direct pay. We talked about it earlier as, a, as that's our sort of our fifth theme, and our sixth theme is global minimum tax. So maybe we'll take those two in, a, in tandem. Direct pay. What is it? Right. What you know, What's the who's who's benefiting here? How would you run at that? So I mean, the first thing about direct pay is it's not everyone, right? You know, I mean, I think that's 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 the point is direct pay again is providing some access to liquidity and availability of your capital stack for those who would otherwise be deprived. And we think of, of, of disqualified persons and, and the tax equity parlance that you can't have, you know, a school district who puts solar on the roof. You can't partner with them because their ownership disqualifies it from the tax credit. Right. It, so, that's, a so, power, that's a powerful change. Right. That's a really right. powerful and, change. And, and so, you know, there's plenty of wonderful community shared solar developers that have done that and taken advantage of put solar on the school. Half of it goes to, you know, community solar subscribers, half goes to the school, fits all the program guidance, but they retain ownership. Now there's the opportunity for those, you know, school districts or others to look and say, Hmm, maybe this is an asset I want to own. And if I choose to do so, I don't have to go through this complex explanation to my board of, do I, form some type of, you know, regarded entity arm that's going to own it in a partnership and, and, and these structures. Maybe I just do that. Life, life and, gets simpler. This and way. I think it also allows developers to take a little different look and say, well, maybe I don't have to come with the capital to own this. Maybe I can help you develop it and help manage and run it and, and do a different type of, of project there. So I, I think it's exciting, but it, it's a limited audience that has that, that opportunity. It's important to consider that as you look at the structures. And there's certainly a lot more guidance we need for some of those aspects of, you know, how, how that is going to operate and can there be any cross ownership and those kind of things within those structures and how it's going to work to, to really facilitate that program. Right. Yeah, direct, direct pay benefits your tax-exempt organizations more mm-hmm. than anybody else, okay? Yeah. And it can be very difficult and tricky for a tax-exempt organization to try and structure a, a traditional partnership tax equity investment, right. okay? So this gives them a tool in their toolkit they've never had before, and I think it's a really important tool for them. It's maybe a very tailored audience, but that's a big audience. That's yeah. still, it is. Still it absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. Any comments on the global minimum tax? That was our sort of final... Yeah, sure. That's really a financial reporting yep. issue. Yep. And so um, I think the questions there are, how do you utilize the tax credit for global minimum tax purposes? How do you utilize accelerated depreciation expense for global minimum tax issues? But that really appeals to your financial reporters more than anybody else. Sure. Yep. Some of the questions that we've received through time, and maybe you have as well, is the speed at, um, at, at project delivery, right? And we felt a little bit here through, you know, the 2022 timeframe and the projects that did get pushed back, that could be supply chain driven, right? Uh, that could be inter- interconnection costs, uh, delays and otherwise. You know, people are like, does this help me move project faster, right? It's been a, a, a question. I, I think I have an answer, but I'm interested in you guys saying like, does IRA really sort of break the log jam or it seems like it creates incredible incentives, but I'm not sure it's necessarily breaking the near term log jams, but I'm interested in your perspectives. Yeah, I, I don't see it breaking the near term log jam. I think, you know, there are some of the things we didn't talk about, right? There are 
you know, tax credits available for manufacturers as well in this. There's obviously the domestic content adder that we need more guidance on. So maybe over time, as the domestic supply chain ramps up, there's yeah. there's there's a breakage of the log jam. So, but I don't think in the immediate short term that that'll be, um, you know, that there'll be any help with the, the supply chain gotcha. uh, issues. Gotcha. When when we um, hurdles, we talked about some of the hurdles. One of the uh, items was some reconciling some of the federal, some of the rule promulgation, some of the state rules. What would be some of the areas we should be paying attention to for where there might be some tension between what's happening in states and or through IRAD? Is there anything that's sort of jumping out that we should keep a pulse on? I mean, I think, you know, I would think the biggest one is on the low-income community adders, and especially, like we talked about, you know, some of the energy community adders are pretty black and white. Like you talked about, you're yep. building on top of a former closed coal mine. That pretty clearly you're yeah. in the census tract, right? Yep. Um, for the low-income community, there's certainly just the one aspect of the 10% kind of uh, bonus, if you will, if you're location-based, right? But for some of the others, you know, the rules on how that's going to operate and looking at what traditional state programs have been for low-income community shared solar and what the thresholds have been, does the federal align with those thresholds or is it potentially something higher? And, and you know, how does that, do we set a federal bar that's higher than the state bar? And then, you know, there's another question. You have to get the allocation of environmental justice. In awarding those allocations, is there a metric where they look at, well, you're already getting the advantage of this state incentive, so we're going to do some type of scoring that says we're going to give you a lower allocation of, of you know, yeah. capacity because you're already getting these other advantages and we're trying to push this across the U.S. I think that's probably the biggest one to look out for from state state aspects because none of, the, none of the others really require as much interplay with the state. That's awesome. I think our time here on this uh, Insights panel is coming to a close. I was going give, to uh, give each of you a chance for closing thoughts, but I'll give one person a chance for quick closing thoughts. This is an exciting time, right? Lots, lots for us to figure, figure out together. What, what would be, what, when, you, when you look out, what, what excites you over the next three to five years? Maybe one of you jump in, whoever has a point of view on that. Yeah, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, excited about, I'm excited about the adders. I think that, you know, it really, allow, it's going to, I think, the adders and also the interconnection costs, new technologies, it's really going to allow community solar to, you know, not really fully live into its mission yeah. of really expanding access for solar, which is something that I think at U.S. Bank we're super excited about. And, you know, with the ability of, to, you know, transfer credits, you know, through the partnership, just the increasing liquidity to really, you know, support support communities, support the energy transition in a just way. Uh, we're, we're super excited about that. Yeah, Adam, I, I think we, we love that too. We talk about accelerating the transition to clean energy, and that's one of our missions. And, and at the same time, providing access to a broad set of the community that getting that equity access is really, really important. Brian, Adam, Tony, wow. If we didn't get smarter today, I don't know how we could have, could have, could have avoided it. You guys were terrific, absolutely terrific. So thank you. We'd also like to thank our uh, supporting sponsors who helped make the Media Zone possible. AES, Aurora, SMA, SolReed, and SunGrow. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks to the whole audience. Appreciate the time. Thank Thanks, you. Bruce. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to today's live stream replay from RE Plus Power Up Media Zone. I want to thank once again the sponsors who helped make the Media Zone possible, in particular, 
Fluence, who is our presenting sponsor, and our wonderful supporting sponsors as well who contributed to the show. Thanks again to RE Plus for trusting us with half of your booth on the show floor. And thanks to each and every one of you who not only showed up here for this replay, but who showed up live on the show floor to help create that audience atmosphere and give us that feedback right from the show floor. I'd love to know what you learned from this conversation. If you'd go to mysuncast.com and click on the episode notes page, you'll find a link to the show notes for this episode right in your podcast player in the description. We always link to it. And in that show notes page, you'll easily find links to all of our social media. Would you take a moment and go on to LinkedIn, find the post that we've made for this episode, and let us know what you thought about this one in particular. I know that the guests would love to hear your feedback, and I would love to know how we can make this a more enjoyable experience for you or where exactly this landed and resonated for you. How does this episode help you push forward in your career, your business, your journey in this clean energy revolution? If you want to enjoy even more conversations like this, well, not only do we live stream the whole RE Plus event to our YouTube channel, which is also easily findable there in the show notes page, but we have more than 525 episodes, resources, highlights from all these discussions, along with social media links and each guest's book recommendations, their insights, and so much more over on our website at mysuncast.com. If you've been wondering how you could partner with Suncast, like one of our sponsors did for this live event, or like our many partners throughout the year have partnered on our mini episodes and our custom Tactical Tuesday episodes, or if you'd like to just inquire about potentially having me look at your business through the coaching lens or as an advisor and investor and help scale your clean energy business, well, you could find out how to do more of all of that by going over to mysuncast.com. We try to make it little easier for you to find the path that meets your needs as you scale your personal and professional journey in the clean energy economy. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>